Welcome to Central Speaks, home of our weekly podcast. Central Speaks is produced by Hamilton Central Baptist Church. Well, being a parent is a really tough job, right? I think we know that. And uh, sometimes we hold the reins a little bit too tight, other times we give a little bit too much slack. Uh, When children become teenagers, the degree of complexity actually goes up exponentially. I think it was Mark Twain uh, who uh, said once that when children become teenagers, they should be put into a box six foot by six foot by six foot with a round hole through which you can pass food. When they turn 16, he said, block up the hole. On, On the one hand, parents are charged with this responsibility of raising healthy, well-rounded kids. And on the other hand, part of the maturation process that we as adults have all been through actually involves doing something, trying something, making mistakes that we can learn from. Ernest Hemingway, in his book, Capital of the World, told the story of a Spanish father who had a son named Peco. You may know this. Uh, Because of his son's rebellion, Peco and his father became estranged. The father uh, was bitter and angry with his son and kicked him out of the house. Uh, A year or two went by and his anger subsided and he began to look for Peco, but simply couldn't find him. No result. Finally, in desperation, the father placed an ad in the Madrid newspaper. The ad simply read, Peco, all is forgiven. Meet me tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. outside the newspaper office. Love your father. Well, Peco was a rather common name in Spain. (laughs) And Hemingway wrote that when the father arrived the next morning, there were 600 young men named Peco hoping to be reconciled to their estranged fathers. Now, Jesus once told a story about uh, a son who was seeking the forgiveness of his father. It's recorded in the 15th chapter of Luke's biography on the life of Jesus, and, well, it's been called one of the greatest short stories ever written. Today is part one. Next week, we'll have part two on this. But here's what it says in Luke 15, starting at verse 11. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up 
and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. Well, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. It's really important to understand the context behind this passage of Scripture. The the story that we've read is the third in a cluster of three stories that Jesus told in response to criticism that he was receiving from religious leaders because he kept on hanging out with people who were deemed to be undesirable. In those days, the, the, the religious worldview was pretty clear that God had no time for people who failed or who did bad things. If you broke the rules, uh, you didn't live by God's standards, then God wrote you off and wanted nothing more to do with you. And if that's how God treated people who were failures and did bad things, those who were trying to be like God, they basically did the same thing as well. Good people simply do not hang out with bad people. Problem was, Jesus kept breaking the rules. In in his mind, these actually were the very priority people that God would want to spend time with. He'd say things like, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. And when they they criticized Jesus for eating and spending time with such people, he, he tried to explain how the that the paradigm of God that existed amongst the culture was all completely askew. It was wrong. Not only did God have time for lost people, he specifically went in search of them. And this was the primary point of the three stories that Jesus told in Luke 15. He was trying to explain what God is really like. Well, the the story that we've read this morning, the first half of it at least anyway, is often referred to as the the parable of the prodigal son. Now, that that word prodigal means literally extravagantly and recklessly wasteful, uh, particularly in terms of wealth and resources. It's uh, presented as the story of a son who uh, squandered his wealth or his inheritance on reckless living. I don't know what your experience has been, but over the years I've heard lots and lots of talks on this particular story, and most of them seem to focus on the son who runs amok as if the main point of the story is to show what happens when people turn their backs on God and how they end up down on the pig swill and the bottom of the barrel, and then they come to the senses and they come back to God and get forgiven and restored. No no doubt, many of us can probably identify with that. Maybe we've spent a few years living on the wild side, and we can identify with the story of the youngest son here. However, when we note the context in which Jesus was speaking, the the major character, the, the star player, if you will, is not the wayward son who made a mess of his life. The star 
is the Father who received him back. In fact, I'd go so far as to suggest that Jesus did not tell this story to describe what happens when a person sins and then turns back to God. He told this story to describe the character and the heart of God who cares for and reaches out to those who are lost and have messed up their lives. In fact, we might even want to change the popular uh, title or, or name for this parable. It's not so much about the prodigal son. It's more correctly the parable of the loving father, because that was the point that Jesus was responding to and wanted to hammer home. So when it comes to understanding what God is really like, there are a number of, of, uh, of insights about God's character that stand out to me from the story. And the first one is simply this. God allows us to experience the consequences of our choices. We're actually able to do what the youngest son in the story did. He, he went to his father and he asked for his share of his inheritance. Now, that might sound like a rather callous and unkind thing to do in our day and age, but in the culture of Jesus' day, there actually was provision for this kind of thing to happen ahead of a father's death. A son could ask for and obtain his share of his father's inheritance. But that would mean that when the father later on did die, there'd be no more that the son would get. It wasn't something done lightly, but it could be done. A bit like a choice to leave the family and go do your own thing. I'm guessing, but I would imagine in the story, uh, the father uh, would have hurt him to comply with his son's request. Uh, He no doubt had hopes his sons would work together with him and take over the family business in the fullness of time, and he probably had some idea also uh, about what it was that the son was going to do with the money. But if that's what he wanted to do, the son was free to choose to do so. And the father's response in the parable is a picture of the response you and I get from our father in heaven. See, you and I have been created with the capacity for free will. When God created the human race, he didn't install a pre-programmed chip into the back of us that would define every choice and direction that we would take in life. And in in a a sense, the the, the biblical worldview actually differs sharply from other world religions. We we don't buy into the uh, Buddhist concept of karma, where, you know, what goes around comes around, or the Islamic idea of predetermined fate, as if it's all pretty well mapped out ahead of time. We are not controlled from on high, whereby God sits up there in heaven and has a kind of a control panel and programs and controls what we do. We're we're not like Jim Henson's Muppet puppets with a big celestial hand up the back of our shirt controlling what we say or do. When God created us, it was with the risk and the capacity for free will. And we are supremely capable of choosing whether we will love God and live according to His will, or whether we will choose to slap God in the face and ignore Him completely. We can choose whether we want to live in His family and enjoy all the benefits and privileges of being one of His children. We can choose to move right away 
And if we choose to move out from the family and God's covering, God in his great love and respect for us allows us to do what we want. And I think this was a point that Jesus wanted to get across. God is not into forced compliance of his will. He doesn't manipulate us into loving him and obeying his commands. We can only love God because we want to. Never because he forces us. God does not violate the gift of free will that he has created us with. And so the son in Jesus' story could take his inheritance and do with it as he pleased. There are times when I wish God would interfere. Because every choice that a person makes carries a consequence. And the person who chooses ultimately is responsible for the consequences of their choices. There there are times when, when I wish God would stop us from making dumb choices that lead us into disastrous consequences. I, I can remember as a, uh, a fairly young, probably a brand new committed Christian in my teenage years, I think I was about 16 at the time, having a a, a kind of a theological debate with God over this very issue. In fact, shouting at God, why didn't you stop me? The occasion was a group of our friends, I was a teenager in Whanganui in those years, and uh, we'd had a bit to drink. And uh, my friend had his father's car, and he threw the keys to me and said, you drive. And uh, we were going down a steep hill and went round a corner, took it too fast, ended up on the wrong side of the road and smack into a high curb on the other side of the road. No, 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 No serious damage, no one was hurt, except I had to go and explain to my friend's father what had happened the next morning. And I can remember vividly lying in bed that night and shouting to God, why did you let this happen? Why didn't you stop me? Well, here's the deal. God does not stop us. If we choose to take our inheritance and run away, we are free agents to choose the road that we will take. But we're also responsible for what we run into at the end of that road. If I choose to drive my car on the right-hand side of the road instead of the left and get hit by a truck, uh, I can't blame anybody else but myself for the consequences. And yet there are many people today who choose to rebel against God, to live in such a way as to ignore Him completely, to go their own way, but when something goes wrong in their life, they shake an angry fist at God for not intervening and stopping them. You know what? That that is just patently unfair. Now, the son in Jesus' story could not blame his father for the predicament that he landed up in. It was the consequences of his own choices. And so when God created us, he gave us the ability to choose the direction in life that we would take. We also choose the consequences of our choices. Then a second insight into God's character, that the love of God is constant regardless of our choices. Now, here is a, a, a paradigm of God that is probably quite difficult for us to get our heads around. 
See, we can choose what we will do with respect uh, to our relationship towards God, but we cannot choose, we cannot control how God will relate towards us. We can choose to reject and rebel against God, to remove ourselves from His family, but according to the Bible, we can never remove ourselves from the scope or the extent of God's love toward us. It is God's choice to love us no matter what we do. So, tracking through the story, the son eventually comes to his senses. He wakes up to the reality of what his life has become. I mean, feeding food to pigs was about as low as a Jewish man could possibly get, let alone being so hungry that pig food looked appetizing. Uh, Pigs were regarded as untouchable, unclean, uh, disgusting animals. Feeding pigs that belonged to a Gentile was really at the bottom of the proverbial barrel. But then the son remembers, oh, that's right, back home. Even the hired servants of his father had more than enough to eat. Here he was contemplating eating pig food, and his father's servants were being well fed. And so the the wayward son decides to return home. He, He comes to his senses, and he resolves that he would turn away from his mistakes and return home to his father. Now, again, a lot of preachers make a great deal of this point. Quite rightly so. It's a valid point to stress. But again, I would want to suggest that it's only half the story Jesus was telling. And it's probably the minor half of the story. In fact, what Jesus was really on about was the response of the Father. Verse 20 says that while the Son was still a long way off, the Father saw him and ran to meet him. It's been suggested this is the only time in the entire Bible where God is depicted as being in a hurry. Running to embrace a repentant sinner. And that, Jesus said, is the heart of God toward people like us. This was a a radically different perception of God to what most people in his day thought. A lot of people then, maybe still today, have the idea that God is like an angry, grumpy old judge, full of vengeance and punishment. Uh, God is loving towards those who are righteous, but full of wrath and judgment towards those who step out of line. Well, Jesus was saying, no, that's not what God is like at all. Remember years ago, seeing a little short movie that was made on this particular story, and it was was set, of all places, in a Mexican cattle ranch. And uh, in the movie, the younger son uh, gets his inheritance and takes off and heads overseas. But the thing that I remember the most about this movie depiction of the story was the father, the rancher, every single day for months and months would get into his pickup truck and drive down the, the, uh, the driveway of the farm, the farm road, and sit at the intersection of the farm road to the main road, and he'd just simply look to the left and to the right in case today was the day that his son was coming home. And then one day when he did this, there was the son 
that was approaching the family farm, and off he ran to greet him. A few years ago, uh, when Tony Campolo was visiting New Zealand, and uh, Liz and I had the, uh, the, the privilege of being like his, the, a host to Tony and Peggy Campolo at the Parachute Festival, we looked after them, and he told me one day of a story, I suspect it's probably now in one of his books, uh, of a, uh, he'd just heard about this, this particular father in, uh, who'd done something amazing in the town of Newcastle. Now, Newcastle, if you know anything about Newcastle in the north of England, is notorious uh, for nightclubs and has the highest concentration of nightclubs uh, amongst uh, uh, per capita of any city in Europe. And it's particularly renowned for uh, obsessive youth binge drinking. Uh, the streets surrounding the seedy part of town where there were in excess of 50 different nightclubs uh, were a veritable meat market where young women almost wore the clothes they had on and uh, the young men and the young women were known for binge drinking uh, in order to just you know, lose their minds. Well, inside one of these nightclubs, there sat an older, mature gentleman who did not look like he belonged there at all. This was not his scene. His uh, plaid jacket, his collar and tie, his expensive leather shoes were all completely out of place amongst the, ca- the usual customers who frequented these clubs. So one night, someone went up to this guy and asked him, what are you doing here? Why, why do you come here every night? Here's what he said. A few months ago, my 20-year-old son and I had a falling out. I tried to set what I considered were reasonable boundaries of behavior, and if he wanted to continue living under our roof, he disagreed with our values. It culminated in a huge row. My son stormed out of the house and has not been home since. We don't know where he is. We don't know where he's living. It's breaking my wife and my heart. I know he likes to frequent these nightclubs in this part of town. So I have decided to come here each night in the hope that one day he might come into this particular nightclub and have a chance for us to reconnect. I want to invite him to come home personally. That is the heart and the character of God that Jesus was describing. Irrespective of our sinfulness or our rebellion, God continues to love us and to long for our return. And at the point at which we come to our senses and turn back to him, there he is running to meet us. Now, the Jewish religious leaders of Jesus' day, to them, God is angry at us for our rejection of him. He's someone to be appeased or obeyed, otherwise something bad's going to happen to us. But according to Jesus, the reverse is actually true. No matter what we've done, no matter what we have stooped to, no matter how mean, wicked, evil, corrupt you and I might have become, the love of God towards us is absolutely constant. And the moment we come to our senses and turn back to Him, there is God running to embrace us.
How did Paul put it in Romans chapter 8? He said, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, either height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. No matter what you've done, you cannot ever shake off the love and the acceptance of God. Then one more insight. It is God's choice to forgive those who turn back to him. Now, we, we talked about uh, our ability to choose actions and directions that we'll take. God has the same ability. And one of the things that God chooses to do is to forgive and to restore those who turn to him and seek his forgiveness. Now, now, why God chooses to do that, I don't know. It's a mystery. It doesn't make sense. We don't deserve it. It's not justified. But it appears to be the unmistakable choice of God to forgive and to restore and to heal those who turn back to him. This was a central truth that Jesus was illustrating in the story. Not only did the father here run and embrace his son, he completely forgave and restored him as well. That was the opposite of what the culture demanded. The, the son had shamed his father and the family. The expectation was that there'd be a significant confrontation when he came back home. That didn't happen. When the son decided to return to his father, he was quite convinced he could never return to his original station as a son. He'd, he'd completely squandered that right. He'd taken his inheritance. There was nothing left for him to claim from his family. The best he could hope for was to be taken on as a hired servant. And in the culture of that day, that meant a very lowly position. Even slaves had greater job security than hired servants that could be dismissed at any point. But as the son pondered his return home, that was what he figured he'd observed. He'd sown his wild oats, now he had to eat them. Or to be more graphic, he had messed in the nest and he now had to live with the smell. Just an aside, there are a lot of religious people who have a similar approach to God today. Oh, they're deeply, deeply repentant and full of remorse for what they've done in the past. They fully acknowledge that they've failed and sinned against God. They've turned their back on Him. And they've come back to God in full surrender of their lives. But because of what they've done wrong in the past, maybe that secret thing that no one else knows about, or maybe that habit that I have difficulty breaking, or maybe... <sighs> the stress that I still feel and I'm not getting victory over, the best they can hope for is to be taken on by God as like a hired servant, never a son or a daughter. How could God ever forgive me and reinstate me for what I've done? How could I be useful to God? And so they come back to God and they're quite sorry for what they've done, but they kind of resign themselves to a B-grade Christian experience unable to accept God's total forgiveness and cleansing and reinstatement. 
Now, of course, in one sense, they're absolutely right. This is fair enough. They don't deserve to be forgiven. But that's the essence of the gospel. None of us do. What right do any of us have to the favor and the mercy and the kindness of God? But you see, God doesn't forgive anybody because it's their right to be forgiven. It's only ever out of free choice and desire on his part. How did Paul put it when he wrote to a young pastor friend that he was mentoring, Titus? He said in Titus 3 verse 5, He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. And so when the son returned home to his father, he had a little speech all worked out. He'd rehearsed what he was going to say, but the father didn't wait for that. But the son never finished saying it. The welcoming arms of the father were around him. But we know what the father did next. Not only did he welcome his son home, he also had the finest robe put around him. In the culture of the day, that, that robe would signify family honor. This was a statement of acceptance and belonging within the family again. Then he put a ring on his son's finger. The signet ring was a, a symbol of authority. For a man to give his signet ring to another was a bit like giving him power of attorney. Here's my credit card. Use this. And the son once again had the authority to act on behalf of his father. And then he put shoes on his feet. Only slaves and hired servants went around barefoot. The children of the master wore shoes. It was a statement that this person was restored to the full place of sonship within the master's family. And that, Jesus was saying through this story, is exactly what our Father in heaven does. Remember the context he's speaking in? Answering those who accused him of spending too much time with sinners, undesirable people, despised people, written off, prodigal sons, who taken their inheritance and squandered it. This, he said, is what my Father in heaven is like. There's a delightful little story, I may have told it before in a different context, of, uh, from the early days of Thomas Edison, and particularly not long after his invention of that initial light bulb. Now, light bulbs today are fairly light, flimsy things, worth, what, a couple of bucks each, that sort of thing. But uh, initially, they were a cumbersome contraption that took a whole team of engineers 24 hours to put just one together. Well, the story goes that when Edison was finished with one light bulb, he gave it to a young boy helper to take upstairs and put into a storage shelf. And the young boy held it very gingerly and carried it carefully, and he went up the stairs one at a time. He wasn't going to drop this thing. And he, another step, another step, and he got to the top, and he, well, he tripped over a piece of loose carpet and dropped the contraption. It smashed to smithereens. Took a group of engineers another 24 hours to make a replacement. <laughs> Thomas Edison had to get the new one upstairs, and he got the young boy, come here. And he put it into his hands. And he took it upstairs. See, when a person turns back to God, when they come to their senses, when they repent of their sin, God doesn't hold them at arms. Oh, I'm not going to trust you again. I'll give it to someone else this time. 
There isn't a concept of limited forgiveness. They're not treated like hired servants. There is no such thing as a B-grade Christian future. But being forgiven by God, is it's not like getting out of jail where you're ostensibly free to go wherever you want, but you always have that cloud over your head of a prison record. Now, there's only one way that God forgives, and that is completely. Forgiveness by God means reinstatement to his family. He puts a robe on our shoulder and a ring on our finger and shoes on our feet. We are accepted by God. We are given his full authority to minister in his name. It is totally undeserved. It's totally unreasonable. And yet such is the extravagant, prodigal love of God towards people like me and you. And as we finish up this morning, my my question to us is simply this. Have you come home? Do you need to come home? You need to, in that metaphorical sense, return to the Father, whereby you begin to pray, you open the account, you start to relate with Him, you invite Jesus Christ to become the Lord of your life, and you watch as the Holy Spirit comes into you and begins to change the way you think. Probably most of us are there, except some of us are stuck on the little speech that the Son had. Lord, I've sinned against heaven and earth. You couldn't ever really restore me properly. The best I could hope for is to be hired servant. Thank you for that. But the Father wants to greet you and put the robe around your shoulders and the ring on your finger and the shoes on your feet and say, come right in. Don't let the devil's view of you steal my view of you. Come home. Come right in. If we can help and coach in any way that you would find that freedom, we would love as a church family to be a safe place where that can happen. You can contact us at any stage and we'll set up a time to chat. Let's pray together. Thanks for joining us this week online. Come join us on Sunday mornings too if you're in Hamilton. Find out more about Hamilton Central Baptist Church and discover ways to get involved at www.hcbc.nz. Join us again next week at Central Speaks.